You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. All you need is love. All you need is love. All you need is love. Love. Love is all you need. Name that band. The Beatles. The Beatles. Uh, July 7th, 1967, the Beatles released uh, the hit single, All You Need Is Love. But just because you say it enough times doesn't make it true. (laughs) It's such a simple idea. I mean, wouldn't it be great if all you needed is love? All you needed was that spark, that chemistry, that compatibility, that attraction to another human being. Wouldn't it be great? It's such a simple idea. And yet, I think it's so simple, it doesn't deal with the reality of the complexity of human relationships. See, that narrative, all you need is love, is not only found in that song from the Beatles, it's seen almost everywhere throughout culture, uh, movies, TV shows. I think about fairy tales. I mean, we grew up on kind of this fairy tale picture of uh, romance. Uh, Cinderella, maybe you've seen the movie Cinderella. Uh, Her life was so terrible as a single person. Wasn't it? I mean, we don't always realize this, but it's just like she was covered in dirt and ashes, and she hated her family, and they hated her, and all this sort of thing. And then she goes to a party, and she meets a guy, and she falls in. She falls in love, and they dance the night away. It's this montage of them dancing in the ballroom in the garden or whatever. And then, oh no, you know, there's the the deal with the fairy godmother, and she's got to leave before midnight. And so she goes to leave. She leaves her glass slipper behind. And then the prince utters this line. This is telling. Wait, I don't even know. He doesn't even know her name. (laughs) Like what? They didn't like have, like what kind of conversations are they having during that? Not much, apparently. (laughs) They're just dancing, getting like, that is like one of the most shallow, superficial relationships. And yet, they're in love. The only thing they have in common is he now has a glass slipper and she has a foot. <laughs> and so he sets out on the quest. You know, we must find the, the, the young lady. And it's just like this kind of generic. And anyone who can fit into this shoe size, I mean, like, really? Is her foot size so unique that she's the only one that could fit? But anyways. Finally, you know how the story goes, like if the shoe fits and they, they, they find each other at last, and then that's the last scene of uh, Cinderella and the prince riding away in this carriage, and as they lean in for a kiss, the line shows up, and they lived happily ever, ever after. Wouldn't that be nice? If all you needed was love, if all you needed was a glass slipper, if all you need, you don't even need to know the person's name, actually, (laughs) to have a healthy, sustaining, fulfilling, long-term relationship. I can't help but think about another, maybe real-life fairy tale wedding, July 29th, 1981, Princess Diana married Prince Charles. Here's another picture. Does it look similar to you? Another carriage picture 
of a prince and a princess riding away into the sunset on their wedding day. The Archbishop of Canterbury in the wedding ceremony said this, uh, these words, here is the stuff of which fairy tales are made. The prince and the princess on their wedding day. But fairy tales usually end at this point with the simple phrase, they lived happily ever after. This may be because fairy tales regard marriage as the anticlimax after the romance of courtship. This is not the Christian view. Our faith sees the wedding day not as the place of arrival, but the place where the adventure begins. Wise words from the Archbishop of Canterbury. And yet, if you know the rest of Princess Diana's marriage with Prince Charles, it was far from happily ever after. The couple was separated in 1992 uh, when the affair that uh, Prince Charles was having with his now wife uh, was made public, and then they were officially divorced in 1996. Princess Diana later would say this about her marriage. I don't think I was happy. I never tried to call it off in the sense of really doing that, but I, don't, but, I, but I think it was, speaking of her wedding day, the worst day of my life. Would you ever expect that just by looking at that carriage photo and how beautiful everyone is and how happy everyone is, right? But then looking back, she, she genuinely is like, honestly, the day I got married was the worst day of my life. Here's the point. Real life relationships are not as simple as all you need is love. They're not as simple as happily ever after. Real life relationships are complicated. And today, I want to dive into some of the complexity that we experience as followers of Jesus, regardless of whether you're married, you're single, or you're not really sure. Chris Rock says this, comedian Chris Rock, do you want to be single and lonely or married and bored? And it's this kind of dilemma, this cultural dilemma. For single people, maybe you feel that pressure every time you go to your grandparents' house. Or every time you, go, you, know, you, you interact with this person, they're asking you the same question. So when are you going to get married? Are you seeing anyone? Do you have any prospects? What about this person? I know a guy. You know, and they'll try to set you up. And there's this, there's this pressure that you might feel, especially around Valentine's Day. If you're married, maybe you faced a different question. The question for you is not when you're going to get married, if you're already married. The question for you, culturally speaking, is why? Why did you get married? Why would anyone want to get married? You might not hear that from relatives. You'd likely experience that from TV and just the perspective on disposable relationships in our culture. It's complicated. It seems like it's a lose-lose. Now, I want to give a quick disclaimer before we jump into our text. Uh, today's sermon is PG-13. It's rated PG-13. Not rated R, okay? I'm not going to get like overly descriptive about certain things, but our teaching text for today is from 1 Corinthians 7. If you have a Bible, you can open to 1 Corinthians 7. And the chapter, 1 Corinthians 7, is primarily, the topic of discussion is primarily sex. 
So I'm going to talk about sex and sexuality in a, a Christian perspective in those ways. If you have kids with you and you'd rather uh, not have them sit in with you, you're welcome to check out either some of our kids' classes downstairs or hang out in the lobby. But just with that disclaimer out of the way, let's jump into our teaching text. 1 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, so this is the message, here's the context, the, the church in Corinth, there's this, this message going around, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So let's just talk briefly about a biblical uh, theology on sexuality. Uh, there's a message going around in Corinth that sex is wrong, it's evil. But that's not the only message. There's two actually competing messages within the congregation. I'll show you a chart for this. On the one end, there are people who uh, really, they buy into the philosophy of hedonism, which is the ultimate goal of life is pleasure. You've maybe heard that phrase, the person who dies with the most toys wins. For hedonism, it's the person who had the most fun wins. Who, who squeezed every ounce of pleasure out of life. And for that person, sex becomes ultimate. If it feels good, do it. This would be very common among specifically the Gentile converts to Christianity. Not necessarily the Jews who became Christians who are part of the church, uh, but those who came from a pagan background. It would be, and this is, might, might be kind of hard for us to wrap our minds around, but it would be like normal for a husband to go to work and on the way home from work visit a temple prostitute, just like on a weekly basis, that would be a normal thing. And as much as our, our society feels like we've maybe progressed past that, uh, I drive to the church building quite early on Sunday mornings, and I can tell you, I drive past a strip club every Sunday morning, that parking lot is chock full of people who've been there from late Saturday night. Still, it's Sunday at like 6.30 in the morning, and you just think about rampant pornography, and you just think about uh, explicit content, and you think about all the apps that exist to make it easier and more convenient for you to participate in hookup culture and so on and so forth. Maybe we haven't progressed as much as we'd like to think. On the other end of that is a reaction to hedonism. It's called asceticism. And asceticism really views sex as wrong, as evil. It views kind of the physical as inherently bad and the spiritual as good. And so it's this reaction. And so in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 1, that's the perspective that the Apostle Paul is trying to speak against. People who just try uh, to make any, any kind of pleasure, any kind of you know, even bodily appetite sound as if it's evil. Obviously, this is an overreaction to hedonism, but we have to recognize that in the church in Corinth, both of those mindsets, both of those philosophies are really at play. In contrast to that, biblical teaching is that sex is sacred. This is biblical theology uh, on a sexual ethic. Uh, and if it's sacred, what that means is it's created by God. If you go back to Genesis chapter one and two, God created you know, this, the heavens and the earth, and he created the, the world, and he created humans as good. And part of that is the male-female difference and, and sexuality and, and, and marriage being part of that. So sex is God-given. But what this means is if sex is God-given, Pastor Levi Lesko says it also must be God-governed. What that means is if God made it, he sets the rules for it. 
He writes the operating manual, and we get ourselves into all kinds of trouble when we go beyond the bounds that God has created. One of the most concise ways to explain this is in Hebrews 13, verse 4. It says this, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So there's two kind of uh, terms here. One is marriage, right? And a biblical view on marriage is that marriage is a one-man, one-woman, lifelong covenant relationship. That's a biblical perspective on marriage. That's the perspective on marriage our church holds and I teach. Uh, And then there's the marriage bed. With the marriage bed, is that's just a shorthand term referring to sex. And it really explains that's the context that God created sex for within the covenant relationship of marriage. So just for the sake of clarity, any sexual activity outside of a marriage relationship between one man and one woman is that Greek word pornaya. That's the Greek word sexual immorality. Now that includes premarital sex, sleeping around, cheating on your spouse, homosexual sex, polygamy, pornography, and the list goes on and on and on, right? Uh, Now, what we have to recognize is that Paul's solution for this is not asceticism. He's speaking against asceticism. His solution for this is a godly marriage. Do you notice that in verse two? He says, so each man should have his wife and each woman should have her own Husband, And so he, point, he, he doesn't try to speak against sex in general. What he does is he says we need to put sex in its proper place within the marriage relationship. And that's what we need to do as the church as well today. We still wrestle with the complexities of this. Continuing, we're gonna jump around a little bit in our teaching text, uh, but continuing in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 6. Paul says this, now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am. And in case you didn't know, the Apostle Paul is a single man. Uh, But each one has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Now, here's the point. Your relationship status, whether you're married or single, is a gift, okay? It's one of the first points here. Now, Paul is gonna kind of make a case. He's gonna, he's gonna kind of try to convince people, if you're single, don't rush into a marriage because there's actually some benefits. There's some blessings. It's a gift to be single. But in the same way, here he kind of concedes that if you're married, it's also a gift. He says each one, each one of those relationship statuses, whether you're married or you're single, it is a gift. Now, If you just look at the way that the Apostle Paul is writing this letter, it's not very typical for him. Typically, he speaks very strongly, very boldly, almost in a thus saith the Lord kind of way. And here, he's like, he knows he needs to tread softly because it's difficult to make too many universal principles around romantic relationships. He's like, this is not a command. This isn't from the Holy Spirit necessarily. This is just kind of my wisdom, my advice on this topic, okay? Now, that's, that shows you it's what? It's not simple, it's, it's complicated. When the Apostle Paul is even like, I'm not telling you what to do, because he's really has, if you read Paul's letters, he has no problem telling people what to do, <laughs> right? 
He's very good at telling people what to do. And here, if you, if you were to take time this week and read through all of 1 Corinthians 7, it's kind of difficult to make any sense of what he's trying to tell people to do because he's kind of, he, 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 he's just sharing wisdom. But the wisdom he shares here is that your relationship status is a gift. And I recognize it may not always feel that way. It may not feel like a gift to be single on Valentine's Day when you're scrolling through social media and you're seeing all these selfies of couples at restaurants that they probably can't afford, right? And they're having so much fun and, and, uh, and it may not always feel like a gift to be single. It may not always feel like a gift to be married when you're having the same argument for the hundredth time and you're not making any progress and you start to, you start to have that grass is greener mentality and why did, I even, why did I get married in the first place? You start to, you know, those, those doubts start to creep in. It may not always feel like a gift, but I have to tell you, your relationship status, wherever you find yourself in today, it's a gift. And we must begin to recognize the gifts, even if they're not always apparent to us in our relationship status. And one of those hidden gifts is that even in the difficulty, even in the complexity, God will grow your character regardless of whether you are married or single. This is not necessarily uh, a relationship Bible passage, but in Romans 5, verse 3 through 5, the Apostle Paul addresses the idea of suffering. And you can just acknowledge that sometimes being single or sometimes being married is kind of like a suffering that you go through. And Paul says this, Romans 5, 3 through 5, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We live in a disposable age. If, you, if you're hosting a Super Bowl party and you're having a lot of people coming over today and you don't want to do dishes, what did you buy this week? Disposable plates, disposable utensils. And it's just so easy, right? Because it's just easier if you can just throw it out instead of having to do the work of washing it. The reality is if you stick with something, there's actually this blessing of perseverance which leads to character, that the Holy Spirit is with you in the midst of your suffering and is actually shaping you and growing you and growing the fruit of the Spirit in you. There's a lot of talk about sustainability, about the environment and climate change and all that sort of stuff. And I, that's, that's great, but you wanna know what we really need? We need sustainable relationships, not disposable relationships where you just throw it away and find a new one. I mean. Let's hear some people talk about sustainable marriages, not disposable relationships. Andy Stanley asked this really important question for single people. So this is to you if you're single. And his rules for love, sex, and dating, he says this. Are you, and you're gonna have to like think about this quote, okay? Are you the person, the person you're looking for is looking for? You get, okay, let me read it again. <laughs> wait, what? Are you the person that the person you are looking for is looking for? And if you're single, especially if you're single and kind of seeking a relationship and you've been praying that God would bring you the right person. And there's so much emphasis on this kind of like idea of like that one person, they're out there somewhere. I just have to find them that you can actually totally ignore this endurance which produces character the work that the Holy Spirit wants to do on who? Not on the person you're looking for, but on who? On you. 
Are you actually allowing the Holy Spirit to grow you and shape you and perhaps turn you into the person that the person you're looking for is looking for? A very important question. And then another question that I think is important for married people to, to really wrestle with, this is the subtitle of Gary Thomas's book, Sacred Marriage. He says this, what if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? Now, he doesn't say that marriage will not make you happy because the reality is, I don't wanna paint an overly cynical perspective on marriage or relationships today either. There's a lot of joy. There's a lot of deep joy and blessings and gifts that come from that kind of relationship. But have you ever considered that God's ultimate goal in your marriage is, is perhaps not your own personal satisfaction? Maybe God is doing what he's told us time and time he wants to do in scripture, which is continuing to redeem you and sanctify you and grow you and shape you. And perhaps the difficult season that you're in in marriage today is one of the ways that God is putting you through this time of suffering, but if you would persevere, it would produce character and it would produce hope and you'd recognize the Holy Spirit is with you. Continuing through our text, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17. Paul writes this, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to them, uh, to him, and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. So he's like, okay, he's at least gonna give us a rule here. Uh, and to be fair, in verse 17, Paul goes on to give in the verses that follow a couple of different examples which have really nothing to do with relationship status. He's talking to people who are Gentile when they became a Christian. He's like, you don't need to like, become Jewish in order to become a Christian. He's talking to slaves. He's saying, hey, you should still work for your master. But then a few verses later, he continues and picks up that idea and does apply this same rule or this principle to married people or more specifically to widows. And essentially, here's the point. Your relationship status is not only a gift, it is a calling. It's a calling, it's a vocation. Live the life to which God has called you to. And I think so often we have this kind of, you know, are you married, are you single? I don't, it's just like a fun fact about someone and we don't really realize or recognize how, how much of a significant aspect of who they are is, you know, are they in a relationship? We kind of think of it's just a, it's just a box that you check when you're filling out a social media profile. And if you wanna change that box, you change it, right? It's too easy, you know, it's that disposable idea. Or we might think about relationships in the context of a personal desire. Do you want to be in a relationship or not want to be in a relationship? We talk about this when it, when it comes to having kids. How many kids do you want to have? And I think we, we almost totally neglect this idea that perhaps we haven't factored in God's leading, God's calling, and do you truly view your relationship status as a calling because it's one of the most important things about you. Outside of your primary calling as a follower of Jesus, which is to love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, and soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself, right? That's your primary calling, your primary vocation as a follower of Jesus. I would say even more important than your job vocation is your relationship status. I say this in every, in every wedding ceremony that I officiate is outside of your commitment to Christ, the commitment that, that those two people are making before God and these witnesses is the most important covenant relationship that they will ever enter into. It's more important than uh, a job that you accept. It's more important than signing the deal on a house. 
As difficult as that home buying process is, it's more important than a degree program. It's more important than all of these other commitments that you make is your, your marriage is, is a holy covenant relationship. And so here's what I want to do for the remainder of our time is I want to give three things that I believe single people are called to. And when I say single people, I'm saying you're not married until you're married, okay? So even if you're dating, kind of like take that through this, this lens a little bit. Uh, I know that's a little bit of a unique season leading into marriage or preparing for marriage. And then three things that I believe married people are called to today. So kind of speaking to both sides of the aisle. Okay, if you're a single, you are called to reveal the breadth of Christ's love is the first thing that you're called to. Reveal the breadth or the width of Christ's love. Let me read to you uh, what Paul says a little bit later in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord and how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Essentially, what the Apostle Paul is writing about there is his own personal experience as a single man serving the Lord. And he has had the opportunity to experience the fruit and the blessing and the calling of being single for the purpose of ministry. He's been, think about the Apostle Paul's life example where he's traveling around and he's, he's getting to know people and he's planting churches and how many different traveling companions he has. And when I read Paul's letters, I'm like, Paul has more friends than I do. It's like this guy, he knows so many people and he cares about them and he's pouring out his life to all this wide group of people. That's revealing the breadth, the width of God's love. And I would just say this to you, for you, if you're single, you have this blessing of kind of an undistracted life and yet how often are you filling your life with unnecessary distractions? What if you spent your focus that you have and the availability that you have on serving God's kingdom, seeking his kingdom first? And I would just ask you this question, who are you discipling? Who are you pouring into? How, how are you seeking God's kingdom first in your life? That's what it means to reveal the breadth of Christ's love. That's really his, sale, his sales pitch to single people. In 1 Corinthians 7, he's like, listen, if you stay single, you, not you'll have more time to, to binge Netflix, not you'll have more time to find hobbies that are interesting to you. What is he, not like self-actualization. What's he say? You will have more time to serve the Lord. You'll have more time to serve God. And so are you doing that? I look back on my life when I was a single guy as a youth pastor, I took like a small group of guys across the world to do a senior trip where we were going backpacking all the time. I was available like at any hour of the day. I'm just not anymore. I don't field phone calls when I'm home or, or on Fridays or Saturdays, my day's off. And it's just like, I can't because my, my ministry is not only to the church, it's also to my family. 
It's just different, right? But if you're still single, you don't have those familial commitments, then how are you revealing the breadth of Christ's love? The second thing that you are called to as a single person is you're called to commit to celibacy. If you're not married, and again, I'm using that, that, this term single as, in, you're not married till there's a ring on it, okay? Like, you're not married until you're married. Uh, what purity looks like for a single person is it looks like celibacy. It looks like celibacy. It looks like you're not sleeping. It, it doesn't matter even if you're in a, like I'm in a long-term committed relationship. Are you married? Just ask that question, right? Uh, it looks like celibacy. In 1 Corinthians 6.18, Paul's speaking just before the chapter that we're looking at uh, today. More, more on the hedonistic side, and he's, he's speaking to this mindset. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. This is really important because I recognize there's a lot of guilt and a lot of shame and a lot of embarrassment that are surrounded by this conversation, especially of sexual sin. And I believe me, I'm not, uh, my goal is not to heap more guilt or more shame. Uh, upon that. In fact, I just want to speak a word of truth over you that God can wash you clean from any, any, any sin in your past. No matter how long it's been hidden, no matter how long it's been going on, God can, can cleanse you. He can forgive you of any unrighteousness. And I just want to speak the power and the truth of the gospel over you. And look at what Paul says. He still is very bold, saying like, stop doing it. Repent, flee from it, turn away from sexual immorality. But look at, look at how he tries to convince people to do that. Not because it's wrong and you shouldn't, which is kind of the narrative that maybe you grew up in in the household that you were raised in or the church that you were raised in, which, yeah, yes, sin is wrong, but even maybe in a different level than it's just wrong, it's destructive. And that's really what Paul is saying. He's saying that sexual immorality hurts not just other people, who's he saying it hurts? It actually hurts you. It hurts you. Do you realize that's why God has given us his law? That's why God gives us instructions? It's not because he wants to take the fun out of our lives. It's not because he wants to ruin our lives. He wants us to flourish. He wants us to have joy that overflows. And the reality is, whether you're someone who's in a long-term committed relationship and there's sexual immorality there, you have some sort of hidden sin, pornography that's, that's on the side that nobody knows about, or maybe you just are living a life where you're sleeping around and, and, and whatever that, you know, wherever you're at in that, I just have to tell you that sin is, is against your own body and it's gonna hurt you. It's gonna damage your ability for intimacy if you're, if you're in a marriage or you're going to be in a marriage one day and it truly is for your own benefit to flee from sexual immorality. At the same time, uh, you hear that command, you know, commit to celibacy if you're a single person and you're just like, that's just not for me. You know yourself. You know that that's something that there's a deep desire in uh, in your heart and maybe even in your body that you know that that's not something that you can be called to for a life. And Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians 7, 9. He says this, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should do what? Get married, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And I would just say that to you. If you're single and you're like, I just don't know if I could live a single celibate life for the rest of my life, that may be an indicator that God has called you or put on your heart that you will get married someday. 
and continue to pray about that and think about that. And then the third thing that you are called to is you're called to invest in community. Uh, just get this from, from Paul's life, his example. It's the availability that you have to invest in community. The reality is, if you're single, uh, it may be more difficult to, to cultivate some of those deeper, vulnerable relationships, but I would just invite you uh, to do the work, send the text message, invite yourself over. Don't like, you might feel like a third wheel or a fifth wheel or whatever. If you're hanging out with people who are all married, just at the same, like, I recognize how difficult that might be. You're gonna have to, at some level, kind of get over that and recognize that you can have just healthy, grown-up, adult relationships with people and, and just invest in community. Like make plans, hospitality, invite people over. Now I hear this from single people as well. Well, my apartment's kind of small. You know, I don't really like having people over, you know, that, that sort of thing. Here's the reality, okay? I've got three small children, five years old, that's our oldest kid. And two dogs, by the way. We, I might have more square footage than your apartment, maybe not, honestly. The amount of work it takes to keep my house clean for 15 minutes is like, I never imagined that this would be my life, right? And so for you, you might be like, oh, I'm so, you know, it's like, just invite people over, practice hospitality, or go out, okay? Go to coffee or just find ways to invest in community, join a life group. If you're someone who's single but you're experiencing loneliness and you haven't checked that box for a life group in our church, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Find people to be on this journey. Iron sharpens iron. Someone that can actually know who you are, know what you're going through. You can practice vulnerability with the church community. You have the opportunity as a single person, not just to pour out your life for the sake of ministry, but also to really invest in the depth of the community of the church. And that's a blessing, and I think that's also a calling and a challenge for you, okay? Where's all the married people at? We got any married people here? All right. Married people, here's, here's three things that you're called to. Married people are called to reveal the depth of Christ's love. Do you see the difference there? If single people are, are called to reveal the width or the breadth of Christ's love, then married people are called to reveal the depth of Christ's love. Let me go to one of the best marriage passages in scripture, Ephesians 5. Because in, honestly, in 1 Corinthians 7, it does sound a little bit like Paul is a little bit anti-marriage. <laughs> He's not. He's just really making a case for how there's blessings of being single. But in another letter from Paul to the church, in Ephesus, Ephesians 5, verse 31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. There's this mystery. Paul's quoting from really, the, the, really Genesis and God's original design for the two to be one. It's this really deep relationship. It's the deepest human relationship, in fact, that exists when it's done right. And he says this is a mystery that, yes, I'm talking about marriage, but what am I actually talking about? I'm talking about Christ and the church. Your marriage, when done right, in a godly way, can be the loudest gospel message that you ever preach. And I don't think a lot of Christian married people really think about it like that. I'm just trying to survive day to day, 
I'm just trying to get by, right? But when you really commit to having a godly marriage and working on your marriage, and the husbands are focusing on that sacrificial love of Christ, and wives are focusing on respecting their husbands, not only because those are key responsibilities for the husband and wife, those are actually key needs for the other one. And they actually begin, you begin to think about not just you know, how you can be a good husband, but you think about the needs of your wife. You think about the needs of your spouse and how to love them well. It reveals the depths of God's love for the world. The second thing that you're called to is, is in the same way that single people are called to celibacy, you're called to commit to intimacy. Both of you, whether you are single or married, both groups of people should commit to purity in their lives. But for a single person, purity looks like celibacy. For a married person, purity looks like intimacy. What that means is, if there's any sexual activity, even in your heart, that is taking place apart from your spouse, that's sexual immorality. And I know that causes a ton of issues in marriages, but it's those hidden sins, it's those secret sins. And and, and I just need to call you to intimacy, deeper intimacy to your spouse by saying no more frequently to anything that's drawing your heart away from intimacy with your spouse. Say no. Even if it is seemingly innocent, even if it's just this TV series that you promised, I'm watching it for the plot line or whatever, right? But you know that it puts thoughts, it puts images, it puts things in your heart that is actually ruining intimacy with your spouse. And it's leading you. And that is just, that's not guarding your heart. That's giving into the deceitfulness of your heart. And so it's not just the things that we put into our minds, and it's not just sexual immorality, but guard your heart, guard your schedule, your time, guard your budget. You know, like recognize that you've got to say no to certain things so that you can prioritize your marriage, prioritize the other person. When was the last time you had a non-transactional conversation with them? It's important to know if you're out of dog food, right? It's important to know, like, you know, did you change the laundry over? Like, those are transactional things. But the reality is so many marriages after years kind of devolve into just roommates. Roommates that you don't, you know each other really well, but you don't really get along anymore, right? And God has a greater, a grander vision for your marriage than that. But you've got to actually commit to intimacy, You've got to commit to it. You've got to work on it. It's not going to come naturally. In fact, uh, it's, the world is going to try to, to, to ruin that intimacy. And so here's the third thing that I would call you to do is to invest in your marriage. You're called as, as a married person to invest in your marriage. Remember that love is not just a noun, like I, fought, you know, I fell in love or all you need is love, speaking of it as a noun. Love is actually a verb. It's not something that you fall into like a pit that you're trapped in there. (laughs) Love is a verb. It's something that you do. It's an action. Maybe you've heard of uh, the love languages, right? These are the ways that you invest in your marriage is you think of how can I love my spouse? There's five different love languages. It's, It's helpful sometimes to think about it in the context, maybe you've seen this before, of a burrito, okay? Words of affirmation. You make the best burritos. Acts of service. 
You make your spouse a burrito. Gifts. You're like, I can't cook. Who am I kidding? You go buy a burrito. <laughs> time, quality time. Hey, you want to go get some burritos with me? And then touch, you wrap them up in a hug just like a burrito, okay? <laughs> so that's, that's an easy way to remember what the five love languages are. But the reality is, every single one of those things, every single one of those things is something that you do. Does that make sense? It's an investment that you make. And it's important to know your spouse's love language. You know, that's kind of the theory behind that. I say, try to do all five as often as possible. Valentine's Day is in two days. Fellas, I'm looking at you, okay? You guys still got time. Make a plan. What's your game plan? But the problem is, for many of us, we wait until we feel love before we do the actions of love. And in fact, we need to learn to reverse that order. Tim Keller says it like this in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. In any relationship, there will be frightening spells. Some of you are in one of these spells today in which your feelings of love dry up. And when that happens, you must remember that the essence of marriage is that it is a covenant, a commitment, a promise of future love. So what do you do when you're in one of these frightening spells? What do you do? You do the acts of love despite your lack of feeling. And it won't switch overnight or all at once, but I, I promise you this, if you continue, even for the sake of you're, you're committed to the covenant that you made before God and those witnesses on the day that you exchange vows, and you're not feeling it. In fact, your spouse is kind of getting on your nerves. That's the one thing about someone knowing you really well. They know all the things you hate really well. And you're not feeling it. You're in that dry spell. It's not just a few days or a few weeks. It's been months. Do the acts of love. Persevere. And if you do that long enough, the feelings, I promise you this, they will follow. And you will find a fresh wind and a new season of deeper intimacy in your relationship. Now, I just want to speak to you for just a moment if you're like, okay, I'm in a season right now in my marriage that's not, it's not just like a dry season. It's like on the brink of disaster. And if you're in a season like that, I just want to, I just want to tell you this. It's important to invest. It's important to, to commit to intimacy, all these sort of things. But I just want to just encourage you, get help in that. Get help. If you need to read a book together, read a book together. If you need to go on a marriage retreat, no matter how much it costs and no matter how inconvenient it is with the kids and the childcare, do it. Go see a counselor, seriously, seriously, get help. It is a priority. I guarantee you those investments that you make, even if it's scary, embarrassing, just, just seek out that help and God will bless it. Because the grass, the reality is that, that deceptive lie that the grass is greener on the other side, whether it's being married to someone else or just not being married at all, being done of all the hassle, I guarantee you the grass is not greener on the other side. The grass is greener when you take care of the grass and just invest in that relationship. And one of the greatest ways you can do this is pray. When you don't know what else to do, pray. Pray for your spouse, pray for your marriage and uh, recognize that the power of God to reconcile all things 
in heaven and on earth to himself, which God is doing that work of reconciliation and that will be completed on the day that Jesus comes back. If God can literally reconcile the entire universe to himself, God can do a work of redemption and reconciliation in your marriage. I've seen God do miracles in marriages, even in the marriage of my own parents. And I just wanna speak the power of the gospel into your marriage. I just wanna close by praying for all of us. I know it's complicated. I know Valentine's Day is in a couple of days. And, uh, and I don't know exactly what the Holy Spirit wanted you to take away from today. This is just kinda like a best hits of all my stuff on being married and single. <laughs> but I hope that God has spoken to you and let me just pray a blessing over wherever you find yourself in today. God, I lift up all of the single people in this room single people who are single, maybe not by choice. They have a desire, deep, deep desire for you to bring them the right person. I pray that they would persevere, that you would shape them, mold them, make them the right person. God, I pray for the people who are single but used to be in a relationship or used to even be married. And the road that they're on right now can feel like a lonely and a difficult road. And I just pray that they would find the right community, the right people to surround them with. And they would find just deep joy and laughter that they didn't even think was possible. God, I pray for the people who are somewhere in between, who, who aren't sure, maybe they're dating, in a dating relationship or in that in-between season, and I just pray that you would give them wisdom and guidance, direct their steps. If you do lead them towards a marriage, I pray that you would surround them with the right wisdom and counsel. Give them godly marriage mentors, people to look up to, people to learn from. And God, I pray for the marriages in the room that are doing great, would you use those marriages to proclaim your gospel to the world? God, would you use those, uh, those healthy marriages to actually influence the culture of our church? And would you use those people to pour into people who are struggling in their marriages? And God, I pray for those who are struggling in their marriages today. It's a dry season or it's maybe even on the brink of disaster. I just pray that you would do a miraculous work of your Holy Spirit. We know that your Holy Spirit is with us in the trials, in the suffering, but if we persevere, you'll, you'll grow character and that character will lead to hope. And I just pray that if nothing else, that, that people who are in those marriages that are struggling would remember the resurrection power of the gospel and they would be filled with your hope this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.